in the name of a God whose image is engraved on us. Amen. I bet that Jesus was a bugger of a person for anyone in authority to try to be in community with. He offended powerful people every day and questioned authority in ways that really irritated the people who had authority. Now, he had a compelling personality, so everyone wanted to hang out with him, but he chose to hang out with the social outcasts, with the unpopular people, with the women and fishermen, with lepers and tax collectors, and even sometimes with the kids. And besides all that, he insisted on talking about money, which really irritated the powerful people because people with power often have money, and people with money don't always want to talk about their money, particularly the economic justice kinds of conversations that Jesus was always peddling. So his relentless insistence on talking about money may have been the most irritating thing of all. And man, did he talk about money. Sixteen of the 38 parables are about money and possessions. And in the Gospels as a whole, an amazing one out of ten verses, 288 verses in all, dealt directly with the subject of money. The Hebrew text also addresses money quite a bit, and being a good Jewish rabbi, Jesus knew his scripture. And he knew the importance of using one's money and possessions in ways that aligned with one's spiritual ideals. He knew that generosity feeds the spirit of the givers. He also knew that generous use of resources was important to the eventual achievement of the kingdom of God. Giving makes a difference in the world. He knew that sharing leads to the redistribution of resources in an unjust and unequal society, and that this sharing brings us closer to a time when no one will have more or less than anyone else. And he knew that people put money in the places where their hearts and minds are most drawn. And Jesus wanted hearts and minds to be drawn to God and to God's desire for fullness of life for all people. So Jesus pushed people about money all the time. Which is why some of the powerful guys who wanted to derail this dangerously subversive Jesus tried to entrap him in today's gospel. They tried to get him to say something that would either cause him to renounce his own teachings or get him to say something that would lead to his arrest as a rebel speaking against paying taxes to the emperor. They approach him in a public place. They name his virtuousness and make sure that all within earshot know that this response is going to be good. And then they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now, I don't think that the Pharisees and the Herodians were actually so terrible, but because Matthew didn't like them, and because Matthew's a great storyteller, you can almost hear them snickering and rubbing their hands together in anticipation of victory. 
I can't help but picture Fazzini from The Princess Bride when he thinks he's about to be victorious over Wesley in a battle of the wits that's going to leave one of them poisoned. Spoiler alert, Fazzini doesn't make it. And if you don't know The Princess Bride, you can just choose your own Hollywood villain, whoever it is, who might have that look about him. That's these powerful men. And they think they've got Jesus in Jesus' own irritating game of talking about money. But Jesus won't be had. Not like this. Show me a coin. Who is this pictured here? The emperor? Fine. Give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor. And give to God what belongs to God. Jesus' answer keeps him on high ground and foils the antagonist's plans. Doesn't give us any guidance on how to pay taxes. It cuts much deeper than that. He points to something that should touch each of us very deeply. The coin is engraved with the emperor's image. That's who it belongs to, no matter how it may be used or misused. We are not coins. We are not embossed with the image of human power constructs. So whose image is engraved on us? You know this answer. The very image of our creator. Genesis tells us that we are made in God's image. Our first reading today told us that God knows us by name. And our epistle told us that we are beloved and we are chosen. My heart tells me that God's image is on it and on your heart and your heart and your heart, your heart, all of our hearts. Give to the emperor what is the emperor's and give to God what is God's. We give our hearts to God. We do so to return to the origin of our purpose here on earth. The origin of our nature, which when God saw it, God said, it is good. We give our hearts to God so God can heal them and hold them and fill them. We give our hearts to God in hopes that they may be of use in God's work in this world. We give our hearts to God because we know that is where they belong. Which is why Jesus talks so much about money. Whether or not we realize it, our hearts follow our money. Money can equip us to more fully engage God's purposes on earth, or it can be destructive by pulling us away from God toward other things. You see, we are not segmented beings. All aspects of us are interconnected as one. So when we bring our body, mind, spirit, heart, talents, desires, questions, and resources to God, we stay all together as whole beings in God's hands. When we bring only some aspects to God and leave others as far from God as possible, we get all pulled out of shape. And who we say we are begins to unravel a bit. We need to ask ourselves where our money is going because, and we know this isn't just a cliche, we really do put our money where our heart is, even 
if that lands far from our ideals. Ideally, I would not make spontaneous purchases online or in the grocery store aisle. I do not want to be defined, engraved as a consumer target, and I do not want to spend money on unnecessary or joyless things. But I do. Ideally, that money would go to hurricane relief or trauma counselors in Las Vegas, or it would support the place where I and you and others are spiritually fed and nurtured in word and sacraments and equipped to do God's work in this world. In other words, I would use it to get my church pledge up to where I want it to be. Yes, I just snuck that in there. Stewardship season is beginning. But today, I'm not going to talk to you about institutional survival or our desire as a church to really thrive. I am talking about a spiritual awareness of what we each do with our money. When the money entrusted to each of us joins with what our hearts know about God's deepest desires, we each have more peace, less clutter. And the world is made into a better place. As stewardship season begins, we will each pray and discern how much we want to give, to offer of our livelihoods, to make this church a place where worship, learning, companionship, service, community, and healing can happen. And of course, lights need to be turned on and staff needs to be paid Toilet paper and soap and coffee all need to be bought. Three great big buildings need to be kept up, and there is an elevator that seems to need a lot of special attention. Space needs to be created for all the things that we aim to do together. But I'm not worried about those things. I trust the Holy Spirit to work in each of us. The expenses will be covered as the Holy Spirit brings our generosity out. My deeper hope is that we all have significant opportunities to give to God what is God's, to honor what is engraved on us. Generosity in general changes us for the better. The money needed here, the pledges, the act of pooling all of our resources so that we can have a place that is called church, These things facilitate that, I think. If our hearts follow where we choose to put our money, then participating in the communal generosity that happens here places our hearts squarely in the hands of God, which is exactly where they belong. Amen.